Good singing again. Please be seated. We are back in the book of Colossians in a, um, a rather uh, eclectic or, um, what shall we say, <laughs> idiosyncratic series of sermons in which we are hitting the main themes of the book of Colossians, but paying particular attention to a number of uh, issues raised in the book that have to do with our life together in the congregation. Many questions are raised from time to time. So why do we do it this way? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? Uh, we are speaking this morning about church planting, and we, we might say, well, why not just keep, keep growing? It's a, it's a very, very good question. This is not a sermon that directly hits that head on, but um, one that in a roundabout way gives a larger picture of the ministry of the church and of the desire that uh, we have for a true growth and maturity and how it might best, we judge, be fostered. So let me read to you uh, anyway from Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, down to chapter 2, verse 7. We'll be hitting a number of verses in Colossians, but the uh, matter is put pretty squarely before us here, the matter of maturity, church maturity and church planting. Well, here, Colossians 1, 28. Him, that is Christ, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing, to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Let's pray once more together. Father in heaven, we do desire to have the very thing that we have just read, to be what characterizes our lives individually, and together, rooted and built up in Christ, walking in him, established in his faith, abounding in thanksgiving, may you be pleased to use these very ordinary means of grace to the most extraordinary ends. May we truly grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. When I started taking education classes at Virginia Tech some years ago, one of the things that I found, to my surprise, was that the educational establishment hates No Child Left Behind. For those of you who are not familiar, I think many people have heard this talked about, but aren't quite sure what's going on, um, people were noticing back in the 1990s that illiteracy was becoming more and more of a problem, even among graduates of high schools. And in 2001, the government, with overwhelming bipartisan support, passed the No Child Left Behind Act, requiring states 
to set their own standards of education, the SOLs that we take here in Virginia, and to make sure that schools made progress toward those standards with tests. Well, it still sounds like a pretty good idea to me, but it, it met with a hailstorm of criticism, and as I say, the, the people in the business, they don't like it at all. I, I do think that some of their, some of their um, criticism is justified. It turns out that what you measure, the questions that you ask, becomes what's important, the goal that you arrive at. They, they say that you can't measure a good, a good education with a standardized test. I think that's true. The kind of testing that we're doing does fake fo focus on literacy, basic math skills, uh, basic skills in a variety of core subjects. They're not testing whether students can use critical thinking or compose excellent essays or appreciate poetry or have a deeper understanding of history, those things are the things that are the hardest to measure on things like a standardized test. And so those are the things that have suffered most in the last 20 years of American education as American education is more and more focused on having the students do well on the test. What have we learned now in over two decades with this law? We learned on the one hand, hey, if you don't ask any questions, the schools are going to graduate the, the people that can't read or do basic math. And then if you do ask questions, schools are going to end up teaching to the test, and that will become the measure of success. Well, you didn't come here tonight to hear a lecture on educational reform. And you'll say rightly, what does this have to do with following Jesus Christ? Well, we might ask the very same questions about the American church. What defines success? What do we measure? Maybe in America we know what success is in the church. We know the ABC. We value the ABCs. Attendance, buildings, and cash. Yeah, that's success. What if we were to start asking a few questions? George Gallup has been asking questions for over a generation. One question he asked starting in the 1970s, mid-70s, was, would you say that you have been born again? That question was first asked to the American public in 1976 and has been asked every year since. Some of you will know the significance of the year 1976. Who was the president elected in 1976, anyone? Jimmy Carter, our born-again president. He's the one who put the words born again back on the American map, I think, in so many ways. It's he said that he was born again, and then the survey came out, and to everyone's great surprise in 1976, there were a lot more born-again people than the mainstream media and churches realized. 32% of the population said yes. But let me read you a little something else from David Wells at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, Massachusetts, from his booklet, The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church, Banner of Truth. He writes, in 1993, a very interesting study was done which revisited George Gallup's figure of 32% of adult Americans who claimed to be reborn. What this study did was to add just a few modest tokens of commitment as additional tests. In addition to asking, are you born again? They also asked, do you go to church with some regularity? 
Do you pray with some regularity? And do you have some minimal formal structure of Christian belief? When those tests were applied, the figure of 32 dropped to 8%. And if we were to probe just a little more, based on some ongoing research that I have seen, my guess is the figure may be no more than 1% or 2%. What this means is that we may have been living in a fool's paradise. When Gallup produced his figures in the 70s and has repeated them every year since, it seemed like evangelicals were on a roll with such wide popular support and with churches that were growing. It looked as though we were on the verge of sweeping all our religious and cultural opponents before us. That was why these figures stirred such alarm in the secular media, why they created some heartburn in the mainline Protestant denominations, and why they produced just a little power-mongering amidst, amongst evangelicals. But it's turned out to be an optical illusion. The reality that we have to face today is that we have produced a plague of nominal evangelicalism, which is as trite and superficial as anything we have seen in Catholic Europe. End quote. Uh, by the way, would anyone like to guess the percentage of Americans today, or at least as of last year, identifying themselves as being born again? Three. Hmm? Three. 35. We're still on a roll. Uh, I uh, accessed that uh, most recent research from an article published in the Christian Post. The title of the article was, Most Adult U.S. Christians Don't Believe the Holy Spirit is Real. Study. Uh, that is to say, uh, according to the, 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 the uh, a third, 35% of the U.S. population says that they're born again. Most U.S. Christians don't believe that there is really a Holy Spirit. Uh, so, to make the connection plain for you, since I started off in an odd way this evening, just like schools can't rest in the fact that they have plenty of graduates, churches can't rest in the fact that they have great swelling attendance, just like schools have to ask the right questions to assess the quality of their education, the church has to ask the right questions about the kind of maturity or immaturity that they are producing in such numbers. That's why I started like I did. If you want to understand the analogy I'm making, I'd like to give you uh, two points from the passage and then reflect with you uh, on what this means for the larger church again, but especially for the future life of our congregation right here. I'd like to speak to you first on the right goal in maturity, and second, the right place for maturity. The right goal in maturity and the right place for maturity. First, the right goal in maturity. Now, one thing that just leaps off the page as we consider uh, this book to the Colossians is that Paul has a great concern for the maturity of these people. Um, if you follow with me through a number of verses with your Bibles open, you might note that in verse 9, he prays constantly to this end on their behalf. Verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard it, we don't cease to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, 
according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. No mention of the ABCs, by the way. Um, he has different concerns pressing upon him day in, day out. They, they, they know God's will, but how well do they know it? How much spiritual understanding? Are they increasing in the knowledge of God? How is their walk? Are they being fruitful in their service to the Lord? Are they strong and thankful and persevering? These are the things that, is, that are burdens upon his heart, burdens he lifts up in prayer again and again. He desires that these believers, 123, will continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. He describes his ministry in 128. Paul describes his own ministry in 128. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Some of you have complete in Christ. Others of you have mature in Christ Jesus. Uh, Perfect, mature, complete, all getting at the the same thing from a different path. Um, The fullness of maturity, completeness. To this end... I also labor. This is what I work for, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. In fact, he wants them to know what a great conflict he has, uh, wrestling, as it were, in prayer, that their hearts to one may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. He rejoices, 2.5, to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. But he exhorts them in verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see uh, this grave concern in the letter. Um, we, could, we could go through each of the chapters. I'm just going to skip to the end in chapter 4. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete, or again, mature, in all the will of God. Well, God not only wants the people to have full heads, he wants them to have full hearts and full lives. An overemphasis on the head can be practically harmful. Paul wants them to be mature in their understanding, in their loves and in their desires, in their walk, in their fruitful service to the Lord. Again and again, in all these areas, in family life, in work life, this, this is the success according to the word of God. Um, are you saying the growth doesn't matter? No, no, certainly not. Um, I, I, I will say that not all growth is good. Just ask someone who has cancer. All growth is not good. It is possible to grow bigger and bigger, but also sicker and sicker. But Paul speaks of the good kind of growth here, the evangelistic growth of the church in chapter 1, verse 6. You notice the gospel, comma, verse 6, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. This church is growing evangelistically. Healthy churches grow. Healthy churches have compassion on the people around them who are without God and without hope in the world, and they deal and speak appropriately. Four or five, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Paul has a desire for gospel growth. 
So Paul has a passion for the growth and maturity of these people, as well as gospel growth. He describes what it is. He prays for them. He labors and strives. He longs for this greater completeness, maturity, learning, devotion, fruitfulness. And we who are God's people desire, as it says, likewise, to be rooted and built up in Christ, complete in him, living that life that is hidden with Christ and God. So it's very clear that the church is appointed as this place where they will learn and serve and grow together. My first point to you with hardly any application, since it does seem to be all in the right direction anyway here for us, the right goal in maturity. This is the right goal. Now the right place. A little more briefly, in our series we've learned um, how the church is to uh, live and especially here to encourage one another, serve one another, teach and admonish one another, psalms and so forth, edify and pray for one another, and above all, he says, to love one another, to put on love. And here it is again in 2.2, that their hearts being encouraged, uh, sorry, may be encouraged being knit together in love. I just love that. It's a great, great way to put it here. Hearts knit together in love. That's, that's what he wants to see. In other letters, likewise, we are taught all these other one another's to have one, a brotherly love for one another, honor one another, counsel one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Encourage one another, build each other up, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed and so forth. Well, in, in all these ways, we, we are to be a family of brothers and sisters. This foundational loving and caring is an integral part of what it means to be a, a biblical, healthy, truly growing church. Without it, as I said this morning, a kind of spiritual leprosy sets in. That is to say, you get a body that starts to lose feeling among the members. In biblical church life, when one member suffers, what? You tell me. Every member suffers with it. Not so with leprosy. You know the danger of leprosy. Leprosy actually poses little health risk on its own. But the problem is, once you get an infection or you could be burning your finger on the stove and you don't even realize it, uh, you can get badly burned or infected and then such things over time accumulate and the whole body is either made sick or eventually brought down to death simply because it, it couldn't feel its members anymore. There's a spiritual lesson in that. We need to be able to love one another, to care tenderly for one another. Um, how can we weep with those who weep if we're not so knowledgeable and involved in their lives? We intentionally work to create opportunities for Christians here to engage in one another in a loving and edifying way in our congregation. For example, we've worked up to, to pair people in the congregation as prayer partners, uh, men's breakfast, women's breakfast coming up this Saturday at the Richards House. It's very clear from the scriptures that the church is not just a Sunday worshiping community. It's a loving, serving, encouraging, nurturing, edifying, transforming, fruit-bearing body of believers holding fast the word of life. 2.19, all holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows 
with the increase that's from God. That's the picture. Or slightly longer in the parallel passage, Paul says to the Ephesians about the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Here is triumph. Here is growth. And each member of the body needs each other, he says elsewhere, for God has so distributed the gifts that we might and must serve one another in love for Christ's sake. So this is an eminently eminently practical matter for us and the church as a whole. My spiritual health depends on you. Your spiritual health depends on the person on this side of the room and that side of the room. Uh, God has appointed gifts, distributed them in the body so that we need each other. And with what every part supplies, the body is going to grow. A body cannot be healthy if its members are not loving, encouraging, serving, teaching, ministering unto one another. My fingers only work when they are connected to my hands and my hands to my arms and my arms to my body and my body to the head. And so in a real sense, our spiritual maturity is not, as some books might lead you to believe, a matter of private Bible reading and quiet time. It's very much a communal effort, right? Where you go to church if you're moving away somewhere, right? Where you go is going to determine a lot and how you are going to grow and the health that you have. And as I've said before, if the person who has the gift of encouragement isn't encouraging in the power of God, people here are going to be losing hope. If a person who has the gift of helps isn't helping, other people here are burdened. If a person who has the gift of hospitality isn't using that gift, people will feel lonely, unwelcome, and unwanted. If a person who's called as an evan- to be an evangelist isn't bringing people to the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit, the whole body is getting ingrown and unbalanced. This is true of every gift you can name. We have been given to each other to build up each other for the growth of the whole. As Paul writes elsewhere, in Christ, we who are many are one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Uh, uh, was it Romans or 1 Corinthians? Unto each one is the manifestation of the Spirit given for the common good. We need each other. We belong to each other. Christ has apportioned his gifts so that this is the way that we are to grow. And as God's word says, Second Timothy, the word is to make us complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. This teaching is supposed to turn all of you saints into servants. That's the goal of my work. 180 people ministering in joy. The power of God. And other leaders in the church shouldn't merely ask, how can I get things done, but how can I develop others, stretching them into new areas of growth? You see, Paul's longing for this congregation has a, a practical way of it being done and expressed. Church leaders have responsibility to help all believers under their care discover, develop, exercise their gifts in effective ways for the growth of the whole. The church has the right goal when it has these things in mind, the goal of maturity, and the church must be also the right place for that maturity if it's all going to work. Okay? That's a lot of theory. No stories, no illustrations. Thank you for keeping it all in mind. You understand the burden of Paul? With these ideas in mind, I would like to ask a few questions now. 
Yeah, you see that large and growing church? Is it doing well? Now, do you see, don't you think you've already answered the question? You said it was large and growing. I, I mean, um, do you think as a result of what I've just said that we need to ask a few other questions? Not just assume that big is good, size equals maturity, growing means gifted and flourishing. Statistically speaking, you must assume the very reverse. Was there what you're talking about, preacher? There's a question posed and answered in a book that I read in seminary, still on my shelf. Are large churches good churches? That's section in the book. Are large churches good churches? I'm not agreeing with everything in the book, but I would like to explain the results of their survey from, I looked it up, more than 70,000 churches around the globe. Um, not, spe not specific to America. This is the international church. I quote, those familiar with church growth literature regularly encounter the names of a number of large churches which are held up as models to be imitated. The presupposition is that large churches are by definition good churches. Is this thesis tenable? Our research revealed for the first time that the opposite is probably true. They go through a bunch of uh, specifics here. This is a quantitative study. For example, they evaluated churches on 170 variables on a quality index, quote, on nearly all relevant Quality factors, larger churches compare disfavorably with smaller ones. For example, I'll give you a couple. In many churches, those under 100, 31% of all in attendance have some area of service according to their gifts. In megachurches, defined as more than 1,000 in worship, this figure drops to a mere 17%. Okay, uh, just half as many people in the, in the larger context. In many, in many churches... 46% of those who attend services have been integrated into a small group, whereas in megachurches, this is only true of 12%. This scenario is just as dramatic for nearly all the 170 variables that we used to rate a church's quality. Smaller churches of less than 100 won an average of 32 new people to the Lord in the last five years. Megachurches, those over 1,000, right? Having an average attendance of 2856 people, in that same time period, 112 people to the Lord. That is, smaller churches are 1,600% more effective in their evangelistic mission. The author suggests, tongue-in-cheek, tongue we just need to take all the megachurches and chop them up, he says, into uh, 56 mini-churches of 51 members apiece, and instead of winning 112, they would then win 1792 people uh, to the Lord. Um, okay, I won't, we I won't weary you with the quantitative analysis, but I, I love this, frankly, as I, I get into this. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to give you the conclusion, the bottom line. Thank you for, for persevering. Should, uh, we should avoid making large churches into models for others. It seems to be far more helpful to carefully examine the countless smaller churches manifesting high quality, strong growth, and innovative multiplication. If we need models at all, we should look for them in this category, okay? Be like the small church. That doesn't make any sense, you say. Am I saying that church size means less health, less maturity? 
No. Someone will say, hey, what about the church in Jerusalem? It had 3,000, then 5,000 members. What about the church in Ephesus, which was similarly blessed? Well, of course, the answer is in the church of Jerusalem. How many apostles were, were there? Uh, there are 12. All too busy to minister to widows, even though they had all these other elders who were also teaching, like Titus, who is named. Um, understand that in the Bible uh, that a presbytery, that is, all the congregations under the common government of the elders in a city area, is called a church. The church at Jerusalem had many congregations, many ministers, many people working Sunday after Sunday, as it was in Ephesus where we read of the church that meets in so-and-so's house, the church that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's house, and so forth. You have the church in Ephesus, has all those elders, has all those congregations as well. I'm not saying in any case that a large church is a bad church. But I, I, I will say it is exponentially difficult to maintain biblical church life the more it grows. Back to the text. It is exponentially more difficult to maintain biblical church life as it grows. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And you are the body of Christ. One, member, one writer comments, sorrows are lost in a crowd. The verse could be revised. If one member suffers, most of the members don't even know. Clearly part of the benefit of large churches is that you don't have to suffer. If you have those issues, people don't know and don't care. Um, when I was a new Christian in Charlotte, I was a member of one of the mega churches being described here, I suppose, and our singles group. Well, we definitely had some maturity issues, let's put it that way. And in my years there, nearly every Sunday, I had the same congregation, same conversation at least once after the service, stand up and I'd say, hi, nice to meet you. Are you visiting today? Oh, no, we've been members for five years. Well, pleasure to meet you then. Uh, I thought, well, you know, at some point I'm going to get to the end. I, I never got to the end. Um, it, it, there was also this turnover that was going on. And I, I didn't understand what was going on. Um, Matthew 18, what do you think about this shepherding parable? A, a, a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than the 99 that did not go astray. Um, the church needs to be at the size, certainly with enough elders, of which we need more, so that we can feel the burden if even one is straying. I, um, I took a church planning class from a very big church minister. Um, he boasted, I'm not a pastor, I'm a rancher. And he was encouraging others to view the ministry this way. A pastor knows the sheep. He counts the sheep. He cares for the sheep. One sheep goes astray. He's after it. A rancher, he keeps those doggies moving. It's not a biblical ministry. At a certain size, when sheep stray, the only one who actually notices is the wolf. And church discipline is often rendered impractical or obsolete. Those in a smaller mission church, of course, have a mindset that they are there intentionally to be a gospel light, and it must grow. Those in a larger church don't feel that mindset as often. In an older survey, 89% of church attenders say that the church exists to serve my and my family's needs. Something else happens when you're in a position of service. People need to serve in a smaller church. It's, it's, it's not an option, really. People don't need to serve in a larger church. They don't even need to discover their gifts. 17% is enough. 
These are some of the many challenges I could mention of pursuing true maturity and biblical church life as a congregation continues to expand. In any case, case, I hope that I've at least persuaded you that we can't just look from the outside and make an assumption. Man looks on the outward appearance. God, God looks on the heart. You need to ask the right questions. Big and growing does not mean mature and healthy. It usually means the reverse. Bigger is not usually better, and in practice, there are good reasons for that. Speaking as a shepherd, that struggles with a growing church. When we read the Bible, in conclusion, we are confronted with another world, another life, a divine world, a divine life that ordinary people are called to enter and are now entering. It's open to us, and it calls to us. And we feel its call, and we come together as a body of Christians longing to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness in Christ, rooted and grounded in him and built up and growing, that together as a body of Christians, ministering, helping another, one another along the way, together holding out the word of life, seeking growth and fruitfulness, we find that there does come a time that although the church is growing, we find that we are not growing And we realize that there is perhaps a misemphasis, subtle, and yet one that is more and more obvious, that we need to reorganize and reorient ourselves to a point we can reshuffle things, but there is a time to plant. It will mean more labor, but it will mean fruitful labor. The church may be small, and the members of the small church will grow. And as they do, so will the whole church in every good way to the glory of God. I have been speaking in the most generalities and broad brushes, certainly not saying that a church of a certain size is a good church and a church of a certain size is a bad church. I I do say God is asking the right questions. We need to open our hearts as well. And may there be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is our desire. Let's pray together. Merciful Lord, your, your love has compelled us to come in. We thank you for this place that has been to us a kind of a family, a kind of a home. Brothers and sisters, yes, and with a purpose and a future. When all the rest of the things of this earth are long, long gone, We are thankful for all that we have here that remains forever, sure and steadfast. And so we pray that you would build your church upon that rock, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building rises together to be a holy temple in the Lord. May you be pleased to do this work among us and to lead us in the right way. We long for growth, the good growth, in all the right ways. We long to be able to extend that to a needy world. We pray that you would continue to bless our congregation in every way, that with all patience and long-suffering with joy, we might give you the thanks and praise. For you have qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, translating us into the kingdom of the sun.